Well, Father, what a joy is always ours to gather and to join our voices in praise to you and to remind ourselves of what our priorities really are and what they ought to be and what the longings of our heart are for them to be. Thank you, Father, for the instruction from your word that always touches our lives as well. Father, would you take your word this morning and uh, just uh, challenge us and convict us and show us how uh, you've intended for us to live. Father, thank you for your good hand upon us in so many ways. Thank you, Father, for uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that encourages us and that opens our eyes to truth and how your word does have an insight and a and a power, and it cuts through the fog of this world. And so we pray, Lord, for an effective time together studying your word, that it would impact and change our lives, conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus, and teaching us to walk in obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray today with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, if you've been around Fellowship Bible Church very long, you know that we try to live up to our middle name. Uh, You'll get used to that picture in a minute. Um, At Fellowship Bible Church, there are a number of things that we do to keep the Word of God our focus and our distinctive. And I want to talk about that for just a second before we turn to 1 Timothy this morning. I want to talk about our philosophy of preaching. How's that for an exciting introductory comment, huh? Our philosophy of preaching. Well, if you've been around very long, then you probably know that one of the things we don't do um, uh, directly is teach messages week to week that are topical. In other words, we don't promote a series of messages, you know, it's Valentine's, so we're going to talk about love for the next three weeks, and then study the Bible about love, and then do a series on how to get along with your people at work things like that. It's not bad. It's not wrong to do that. Many churches do that. But one of the distinctives that we've tried to maintain is that we be students of God's Word. There's a number of things that we do for that. For example, let me promote our upcoming Saturday Unmasking Satan Bible Lecture Series. Dr. Richard Mayhew is going to be with us from the Master's Seminary. He is an excellent lecturer, 21 pages of fill-in-the-blank notes. What a way to spend your Saturday, huh? You could be fishing, shopping, at a kid's ball game. Come on in and study God's Word. We only do it once a year, but that's an example of what we want to be part of the DNA of our ministry. We want to be students of the book. We want to be in God's Word. We want God's Word to impact our lives. And so we do things like that. We offer Evening Bible Institute. But on a week-to-week basis, when we open God's Word to preach, we do something that, by design, that is called expository preaching. You ever heard of that? Expository preaching, or the exposition of the Word. I know that some of you know this well, but some of you are just trying to figure out what God's Word and the Bible are all about and how we go about church. And what that means is, is that we select a passage of Scripture... For example, uh, the last book that we studied was the book of Genesis. And we just started with Genesis 1-1, and we started in, and it took us like three years to get to the last chapter, chapter 50, and finish it out. We just go right through the book. Now, inside of the book, there are many topics that will come up, and uh, interesting topics. 
After we finished Genesis, we started here lately in the book of 1 Timothy. And so what it means is we start in on the book, we start at chapter 1, verse 1, and we go as far as we can go. Sometimes it's a few verses, sometimes it's only a sentence or two, but we're just taking the word as it comes and we're explaining it and trying to understand what it means and then make application to our lives. One of the things that I think that does is it kind of keeps us honest. Now, I'm not implying that pastors aren't honest and men of integrity, but sometimes when you approach the pulpit and preaching topically, you can deal with kind of the topics that are comfortable or you want to deal with them, or sometimes preachers will get on their hobby horses or grind an axe for a while and they'll preach on the things that that they like to preach about pastors like some guy that's really into end times preaching. He'll preach all the time about the Lord's return. And no matter what he's preaching, he's preaching the Lord's return. And so by opening our Bibles together and turning to a passage and sticking with it, we let the Word of God be our guide and we let God speak to us through the passage. And so the, the deal is that we just go through and the hard part is though, that you have to take what you get. And this morning, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And I say all that to say, not to apologize for our text today. It's God's word, as much as John 3, 16. But to let you know that some parts of God's word are more comfortable than other parts, aren't they? And some passages of God's word, if we weren't preaching exegetically through the passage, it would be really easy to skip over the top of it. And this might be one of those passages that we would just kind of never get around to teaching. It's the Apostle Paul giving instruction in the local church about the behavior of women. Well, that's a great how to win friends and influence people subject for you. In fact, I was thinking about the attitude that people have about this passage, and it reminded me of some really poor humor jokes that were popular a few years ago, they were called man-woman jokes. Now, I'm going to give you a clue, guys. Do not laugh if you think this is funny. All right? They were often kind of inappropriate, and I was thinking about a couple, like one that I remembered had went something like this. How do you fix a woman's watch? And the answer is, you don't. The clock on the microwave is good enough. I told you not to laugh, guys. Don't laugh. All right? Or, why is a laundromat a bad place to meet women? Because a woman who doesn't already have a washer and a dryer is not good wife material. All right? You better not laugh. One more. One golfer tells another, Hey, guess what? I, guess what? I got a set of golf clubs for my wife. The other replies, Great trade. Ooh. Now, the reason I took the time to share that poor humor is this. When we read our passage this morning, a lot of people are going to feel like the Apostle Paul is the kind of guy that would write jokes like this. Jokes written by men for men that degrade women, put them in their spot, and aren't really funny. And so when we read this passage... You need to understand, and we're going to talk about why the Apostle Paul wrote it, but you're going to need to understand that this is God speaking his word to us, whether it's comfortable or not. 
I challenge you not to just flip off your, your mind switch and say, ah, oh, that's craziness, it doesn't fit, it's archaic teaching, it doesn't fit our culture. Because I want to tell you something. Anybody committed to walking in biblical obedience will often not fit well with the culture of our day, the society of our day. Let's see what the Apostle Paul says. Is he really putting women down? Is he really trying to suppress them? Is it really a male-dominated church? What is his reason for doing this? I want to read the text, and then I want us to ask three questions this morning that will help us understand our text. Three questions that we're going to ask based on three separate topic headings. And I think you'll find it helpful. Um, I already discovered from the early service that I can't make it through my message this morning, but we're going to make it through three questions, and then two weeks from today, we're going to finish the last half of this text, which is also very interesting and very puzzling. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. What in the world did the Apostle Paul mean, and what does that have to do with us today? Because we believe the Bible is written for all people of all time, of all cultures, and it applies to all of us. Let's read the text. We're in 1 Timothy as we work our way through this letter, reminding ourselves that it was written to a church in Ephesus that was having problems. They had a number of false teachers that had arisen to leadership that were misguiding the church. Paul loved the church. Paul cared about the church. He appointed a young pastor named Timothy to oversee it and to correct it. And he's writing this letter to Timothy to tell him what he needs to do to straighten out the church. Let's back up just a little bit and let's remind ourselves where we've been. Let's begin with verse 8. And he begins with instruction to men. It's only one sentence. And then he has a whole bunch of sentences for instruction to women. And you say, see what I mean? All right. I want men everywhere, 1 Timothy 2.8, to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Don't you think that's an interesting text of Scripture? What does it mean? How does it apply to our culture? What is God giving us here? And are we living this out? Or are we in disobedience to Scripture? How much of it applies to our culture? There are so many questions that come to mind because you already know that we don't live this out exactly to a T because it's, Paul says, let the women be silent in church. And women have been talking all morning, coming in, visiting, right? So what does he mean? So have the men. So I want to ask three questions that I think will help us begin to understand this passage. And then two weeks from today, we will finish it out with that most strange instruction where where he reminds the women that they will be saved through childbearing. What does that mean? And how does that apply? And how does it fit in with the rest of the passage? Three important questions. 
Each have a point and then a question to go with them. The first one is the historical position. And here's the question. On the historical position, how has the church at large understood this text through the centuries? The second question that I want to ask is the probable conditions. The probable conditions. What made Paul address this issue to begin with? And the third question I want to ask, where we'll spend most of our time this morning, is the biblical instruction. What does the passage mean? What is he saying? And we'll stop there, pick up the rest of it in two weeks. I think that you'll find it helpful. And I want to tell you, even if you are just somebody who very much uh, feels that women have been beat down in our culture... I want to challenge you to hear what the Apostle Paul says. And, and you see if you don't think God's word makes sense. And if it's not applicable to us today. The first thing that I think will be helpful to us is to understand the historical position. How has the church dealt with this passage all these years? For example, it's not new literature. It's not new literature. It's been around for 2,000 years. How, what have we understood this passage to teach? And I have to tell you that, that the general acceptance across the board for 2,000 years, essentially, has been the majority have received it at church-wide as essentially being exactly what you read. Taken to this point, that it's not that Paul is saying women have to put duct tape over their mouth when they come into church. But the idea is that women are to not be the teachers of men and they're not to be the leaders of men and that men are to hold the predominant leadership position. Remember, 1 Timothy is written in the context of instruction for corporate worship at the church. Church Church-wide issues, not necessarily small group issues, but the church gathered, the church at large. And when they get together... Paul says, it's the men that are to lead, it's the men that are to teach, it's the men that are to pray publicly. We're going to see, starting in a couple weeks, when we get into chapter 3 and we we keep moving through 1 Timothy, it's very interesting when the Apostle Paul defines what leadership should look like in the local church, and you're going to see there that he very much emphasizes that leadership in the local church is to be male leadership. Now, if you know anything about contemporary church, you know that that is widely disputed. You know that there are many churches that will ordain women or put women in leadership or have women teaching men. But you need to know that that has not been the widely accepted view for 2,000 years. Do you know when that view became common? Do you know when evangelical scholars began to ask questions about this was in the context of the feminist movement of the late 1960s. There was a guy at, uh, at, who is the New Testament, he's a New Testament professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. His name is Bob Yarbrough. And Bob surveyed scholarly articles that had gone through, the, through history, scholarly articles that Bible scholars dealing with this text. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it fit into the text of New Testament literature? And he found... Uh, by using a bibliographical reference tool called the New Testament Abstracts, that it wasn't until 1969 
that you could find an article that questioned the traditional view of this passage. That men were to lead, that men were to teach, and that women were not to teach over the top of men. They were not to be the ones that were teaching and leading. But following 1969, even to this present day, there's been all kinds of articles written supporting the, real, the, the understanding that this passage is not really teaching what it seems to teach. And that women can preach, that women can be ordained, that women can teach and lead men. And so I think it's interesting that a social movement seems to have highly impacted biblical understanding. I think when that happens, you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful when something that is trending in society comes along and seems to disagree with what the Bible's teaching, and all of a sudden the Bible students realize, oh, the Bible really isn't teaching that. It's teaching something else. One of the dangers of that is, is how many other cultural, social issues will come into play that disagree with God's Word. And there are many. And then all of a sudden, oh, that can't be what the Bible says, because look at what's happening in our culture. That is the wrong way to approach your Bible. We don't look at our culture to get an understanding of of the Bible. We look at the Bible to get an understanding of our culture. We look at the Word of God to understand how God is leading us, speaking, uh, speaking to us through His Word, and what His instruction is to us. So question number one, how has the church at large understood this text Text through the centuries, the historical position is that the majority of churches for 2,000 years accepted that Paul was indeed teaching that men are to be leaders at church and that men are to be the teachers at church. Second question that I want us to deal with are the probable conditions. The probable conditions. What made the Apostle Paul go here to begin with? Now, we've already learned that he's addressed an issue with the men They were to raise holy hands, that is, they were evidently getting up and praying in an unworthy manner. There were disputings and arguings, look back at verse 8, that with they were to pray without any anger or disputings. So there was a problem in the leadership. I want to remind you about way back when we started in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, we recognized that Paul's burden was that there were a number of teachers who, had, who were unqualified, he called them false teachers, he had strong language for them, and he said, they're leading you astray, they're preaching a gospel that is no gospel at all. And many people believe, many Bible students believe, that the probability, the probable conditions for the Apostle Paul to be moved to write like this is that it is likely that at the church of Ephesus, these false teachers and leaders who were getting up with unholy hands, who had created disputings and anger in the church, who had discredited their own leadership, were also teaching that the women could be more fulfilled by leaving away, leaving and encouraging women to discard their traditional female roles in favor of a more egalitarian approach Uh, more to abandon motherhood, to abandon being keepers at home, and to elevate themselves as public leaders and, and to be spiritual leaders in the church. Don't be content, women, with what you are. You need to to do this. And that that was probably a spin-off of the bad leadership that had taken over the church. And so the Apostle Paul wants it corrected. And can you imagine being young Timothy? pastoring this church, being in charge of this church. He's already had to correct false doctrine. Now he's got to deal with men who are in leadership, who are raising unholy hands, who have anger and disputing going on throughout the body. 
I mean, interpersonal relationships that have gone bad in church are hard to deal with. And you got people that don't like each other. And then the next thing he does, he deals with the women. He tells them, these women aren't dressing properly. And that's what we talked about last week, that they should dress decently and with propriety, that there is an appropriate way. His whole point is what? His whole point is when we get together to worship, Christ is to be lifted up and honored, and unqualified leadership is a distraction in the church. Women coming in immodestly dressed turns our eyes off of Christ and onto them, or showing off their new fancy clothes. It wasn't that they weren't to take care of themselves, it was that they were using the public opportunity of gathering as a congregation to show themselves off for self-purposes. Paul says, don't, don't, Timothy, don't let that happen. He goes on to give this further instruction to women, and the only thing you can deduct from it is that what had become disruptive in the church was that women were starting to take over the services, and women were becoming teachers and outspoken in the services to the degree that Paul says, Timothy, tell them to be silent. It raises all kinds of questions, and we'll not answer all of them today, but so far we have two questions. How has the church at large understood this to be? What's our historical perspective? It is that men should be leaders. Until about 1969, that wasn't question. Second question, the probable conditions. Why did Paul address this? Because the false teachers had evidently taught that the women should take authority, that the women should elevate themselves, that they should minimize their traditional role as keepers in the home or their uh, uh, helpmates to their husband, and that the male leadership wasn't adequate. We needed female leadership in the church. So let's dig in with our third part today, and this is all we'll get to then. And it is our biblical instruction. Third question, what does the passage say? We know the historical position we know the probable conditions as to why Paul has to deal with this. It's evidently become a problem in the church. Now for some biblical instructions. What does the passage say? Let's break it down and take a look at it and see if we can bring some understanding to it that will be helpful to us. He's moved from how women should dress modestly and with propriety and that they should be characterized by a graceful, godly spirit. And then he says... A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Verse 11. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. The first thing the Apostle Paul addresses in the church is, first of all, the woman's role. Notice that he has three points under the woman's role in verse 11. A woman should, number one, she should be the student, not the teacher. Look at that. She should learn. She should be a learner in quietness. Number one, the woman's role in the church is to be the student, not the teacher. Second thing you, you see is he said she should not only be a learner, be the student, but she should learn in quietness. The second thing we see is that she is to be silent and not the talker. She's to be silent and not the talker. The third thing he says is, and do that with an attitude of full submission. Submission is a word that a lot of women in our culture do not understand, and therefore they do not like it. Part of the reason for that is that a lot of men don't understand that term. And they have abused their position with women. And learn in full submission. The third thing he says is that they should submit and not take charge. They should submit 
and not take charge. I want you to notice that in verse 11, essentially, even though it might not strike you, especially if you're a woman, it might not strike you that this is positive, but he has phrased this in the positive. This is what you should do. It's positive. In verse 12, he repeats himself, and it's in the negative. He's saying, don't do this. So verse 11, he says three things. Be the student, not the teacher. Be silent, not the talker. And submit and not take charge. Now look at verse 12. He repeats himself, and he repeats the same three instructions, only not in that order. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach... All right, that's number one. The student, be the student, not the teacher. I don't permit a woman to teach. Number two, or have authority over man. That's the third thing we got out of verse 11. Submit and don't take charge. And then finally in verse 12, and she must be silent, not talk. That's our second point. Be silent and not the talker. Well, that just raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? If she's supposed to be silent, how silent is silent? And how come a woman is... So is a woman not supposed to teach at all? Well, no, we have to think biblically. We have to think, okay, what's going on in the culture of that church? What else has the Apostle Paul taught us in the epistles? And one of the things that comes to mind right away is that women are instructed to teach. But they're not instructed ever in our New Testament to teach one group of people. Guess who it is? Men. Oh, women are clearly instructed to teach. Titus chapter 2... Older women, teach the younger women. Teach children. Oversee your families. They are to teach, but they are never in our New Testament ever in any passage is a woman instructed to teach the men. It's interesting, and we'll look at this probably again when we get into the qualifications of a deacon and an elder, that young men are instructed in, young, in Titus chapter 2 Young men, the pastor was instructed to teach, young Titus was instructed to teach all age groups. Teach old men, teach old women, teach young men. But Paul told Titus there was one group he was not supposed to teach. You know who he was not supposed to teach? He was not supposed to teach young women. That makes sense, doesn't it? You're a young pastor. He says, you can teach the old men, you can teach the old women, you can teach the young men, but you're not supposed to teach the young women. A young pastor shouldn't teach... The young women. Let the old women teach the younger women. Ah, it's a safer framework, isn't it? And it fits how we're hardwired and what minimizes the distractions in our lives. Pretty hard for a young man to have a Bible study with a bunch of cute young women. And he's opening God's Word. And so God knows that and God just does things that make sense. You know, and it's kind of a similar thing. I don't want to say this in an appropriate or harsh way. But, you know, God never gives us instruction that we're not hardwired to agree with at some level. And, you know, when a woman gets up and begins to uh, have authority over men, and when a woman gets up and begins to teach to men, there are very few men who, deep in their spirit, have an an openness to receiving instruction from women. Have you ever noticed that? That's not to be negative. I just think it's how God hardwired us. Men don't like to be told what to do by a woman. We have to have the right attitude and a loving attitude towards our wives. I find my wife so helpful. She's so insightful. She's so discerning. She knows things that I don't get a lot of times. And she helps me all the time. You know, early in ministry, when I was a young man in ministry, and Janet would say something to me, she'd say, now, you need to be a little bit careful of the way you said something. It kind of made me mad. I don't like that. 
Then I realized that her love for the Lord and her love for the local church and her love for her husband, she had only my best interest in mind. And so a husband who loves his wife will have ears to hear his wife and to carefully listen to her wisdom. But across the board, if you're on the work front, I mean, you get it. You go out here on Route 9 where they're building highway up on, the, up on the highway and there's a bunch of bulldozer operators and backhoe operators up there and roadway scrapers and rollers and dump trucks. And then tomorrow morning, this little chick comes out with her helmet on and she says, all right, boys, I'm your new commander-in-chief here. It doesn't roll. It doesn't fly. What are you doing here? You ain't telling me how to run this backhoe. You know? I think that in chain of command, and you know what? It's a lot the same way in church. Well, let's move on a little bit. Let's ask the reasons why. This is the woman's role. She's to be the student, not the teacher. She's to be silent and not the talker. She's to submit and not take charge. And and, uh, uh, let me me say really quickly that there are a lot of little questions that come, come to light and come to our mind, but I think that characteristically Paul is emphasizing this for corporate worship, the main voice teaching up front, I don't think that it's a sin for women to come in and talk. And, you know, and, uh, but they're not to be up front teaching over, the, over men. They're not to have the loudest voice in the church. Why did Paul teach this? What are the reasons why? First thing he does is gives us a hint in chapter 12. The first reason why that he teaches the women's role to be submissive to the man and to be quieter, to be quiet in the church is number one, it is apostolic teaching. It lines up with all apostolic teaching in our New Testament. Let me show you what I mean by this, and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What I want you to see is that the Apostle Paul is not just responding to a local uh, issue in this church where maybe in Ephesus the women were getting out of hand and it was only there but that this was a broad teaching across the board by all the apostles. Particularly the Apostle Paul is the one we have recorded the most because he's the one that wrote the churches the most thoroughly. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the letters in our New Testament that were addressed to churches. And his instruction is consistent across the board. It is also backed up by Peter, particularly in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he talks about the submissive role of the woman to the man, and we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But look at the apostolic instruction. Why is the Apostle Paul teaching this to, to Timothy to teach to the church? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's begin with verse 33. For God, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the saints. Did you see that? As in all the congregations of the saints. This was not a localized issue. This was a matter of broad teaching throughout all the churches. So in Ephesus, where it was getting out of hand under these false teachers, Paul wants Timothy to address it. It is consistent with the teaching in all of the New Testament churches. As in all of the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. 
Now, one of the problems with these teachings are that they are across-the-board teaching, but they are affected by cultural nuance. Now, I take it that in Corinth, that if a woman spoke to a man that she didn't know or spoke to a man, remember, this was a man's world, that if anything has done anything to, to encourage and build up women, it is Christianity. It's brand new at this time. They're living in a world that was dominated by men, and if a woman spoke to a man, culturally, that would have been deemed very inappropriate. It would have been forward and advancing towards that man. It would have made the men, especially if he was a Christian man, very uncomfortable for this woman to speak to him because he doesn't know how to take that. Why is this woman talking to me? You have a husband, talk to him. And so the Apostle Paul is calming them down in the church under the new rules, you might say, under grace and under the gospel, where there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. There was like a Christian women's lib movement that was breaking out. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that is not proper in the church. Be quiet. If you have a question, don't disrupt the service. And that's in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we are under the false teachers Evidently, what was happening is the very services were being affected. Their church was being impacted by immodestly dressed women, by inappropriate hairdos and jewelry that were designed to make other women in the church jealous, as we talked about last week, and then by women popping up and wanting to teach and wanting to lead, and it was creating a hubbub. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 14. And Paul says, no, our apostolic instruction through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's will for the churches is that men are to lead, not the women. The women are to be quiet. You know, this fits other teaching as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. Since we're there, just turn back a couple pages to 1 Corinthians 11 and notice how this fits into God's chain of command. God is a God of order. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 14.33. Now look at 1 Corinthians 11.3. This is a very interesting passage of Scripture as well where there's a cultural issue here that they were dealing with. The women in Christ coming in were breaking out of some of their cultural boundaries and they were uncovering their heads in churches. Some of them were even uncovering their heads and cutting their hair. And they didn't even have long hair and it was just like, whoa! Because in this culture, much like some of the Eastern cultures today, particularly in the Islamic world, if a woman would uncover her head and have cut hair, it means she's only one kind of a woman and it's not a good one. And so they're coming in the church and the men aren't used to these women with their heads uncovered. And again, it's taking away from the centrality of the focus of studying God's word, of worshiping God, and Christ being our focus. Instead, the men are all like, see that woman over there? Whoa, she's got her head uncovered. And so there's, it's, the hard part for us is, okay, how do we apply this through the ages interculturally? And cross-culturally, how does it make application? And Paul says here, verse 3, in introducing this section, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Men, you have a problem with that? How many men here say, Oh, man! Submit to Christ! I ain't doing it! What's this submission thing? I don't submit to anybody. You can live that way if you want. Sooner or later, your knee will bow, buddy. Sooner or later, King Jesus will bring you down. Why not surrender now? 
and let him be Lord of your life. He's a wonderful king. He's a wonderful master. And don't you know, we function a lot better when we have a ruler in our lives. When I have a master and his name is Jesus. And so God says, don't you know that the head of every man is Christ? But he doesn't stop there, Paul says. And the head of the woman is the man. Now you say, oh man, that's where the women go. I don't want these men telling me what to do. I can think for myself. Absolutely you can think for yourself. And you ought to think. And you ought to be engaged. And you ought to grow and develop. Christianity is what opened the door to women even being allowed to have an education to begin with. But in God's chain of command, he doesn't have two-headed monsters. Those are freaks. God says, man, you're in charge of your home. You are the head of the woman. But listen, a man who understands that Jesus Christ is his head is usually a man that a woman really enjoys having protect and lead and guide and provide for her. It's not an abusive home. It's not a distortion of leadership. It is the man doing what God created him best to do. Lead, protect, have a vision. Lovingly provide for your home. Listen to your wife. And he goes on to say, and the head of Christ is God. Didn't Jesus, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat drops as it were of blood, didn't he even say, Father, not my will but thine be done. Even Christ in his humanity surrendered to the will of the Father, didn't he? And uh, so you have a chain of command. I mean, this is taught throughout the the apostolic teaching. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And this is the one that really gets people. Because women just don't like this submissive role that is taught in Scripture. So it's like an abuse. It's not an abuse at all. God knows how we're designed. And God knows that for us to maximize our potential, we function best in certain conditions. And when the man is a godly, Christ-centered Biblically obedient man taking his leadership, he becomes the kind of man God wants him to be. And when a woman has a man like that in her life, she can maximize her giftedness and her strength areas. When you get the roles reversed, things don't go nearly as well. Look what he says in Ephesians 5, verse 22. You know this passage well. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Listen, I don't think women have near as much problem with submission, Christian women in the church. I think Non-Christian women or people who are outside of the church and outside of biblical teaching, they have no idea. They have nothing but a distorted Hollywood view of a submissive woman. And Hollywood refuses to, to have anything close to that. You notice the movie trailers? Every movie that's coming out is what? Some, some really hot, tough woman who can, can beat up three men at one time. And, you know, can just dominate. 
Dominant women is often the theme of Hollywood movies. Just this week in the news, what did we have? We have the, our president's administration under, under him as our commander-in-chief, the military being forced to open the door to provide women farther out on the fronts of combat. What kind of a culture that isn't in survival mode will put their women out front with machine guns to protect them? Isn't there something wrong with that? You can stand up right now and just say, you're nuts. Women ought to be able to take machine guns and go out in the desert and be on the front lines of battle. I'm telling you, God didn't hardwire women for that job. I'm not saying there's not women that can't kill you with a machine gun. But I'm telling you, God did not hardwire women to do that, and God did not hardwire men to be at ease and at peace and put their women out front on the lines of combat. You see, it's the same way in a marriage, it's the same thing here. Women don't have a problem with submission in the church near as much as they have a problem with men who do not love them the way Christ loved the church. When a man loves his wife the way Christ loved the church... I think it makes a woman just, she just loves her man. She, I've used this illustration, and we all know there's difference between men and women. And I mean, Janet's really tough, you know? She's tough, she's strong, she's good. She works out at Shepherd Gym. But you know, when there's, um, when there's a noise in the middle of the night, who's under the covers and who gets the elbow to go check it out? <laughs> so it's those kind of things. Girl, take care of that. This is not difficult. We are not a, we're not a simple audience. We don't have to spend thousands and tens of thousands of ta taxpayer dollars to put on the cover of Time magazine that it's really true. Men are different than women. Duh. And I'm telling you that God designed roles to fit exactly the way he hardwired us to live and to perform and to function. So the reasons why the, the woman's role is student, not teacher, silent, not talker, submit, not take charge. The reasons why, first of all, number one, apostolic teaching. Now back to 1 Timothy. The second reason is the order of creation. The first reason that Paul taught this was apostolic mandate. This is what they taught in all the churches, fitting with God's order of chain of command. The second reason... Look what he says in verse 13, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. His second argument for why he's teaching that women shouldn't take leadership and teach in the church and be the outspoken ones in the church is the order of creation. What's he talking about here? He's talking about Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, this is what it says. The Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I mean, almost every man that, that's around knows that. When he has to be home alone, it's just not a pretty thing. You know, you're eating ice cream out of the box, <laughs> drinking the orange juice out of the jug. The dishes, you know, it's just, ugh, it's just not a good way to live. Adam figured that out in a hurry. He's naming the animals. He's overseeing creation. God put him in charge to have dominion over everything. And then he says, everything is good. Everything is good. Everything is good. It is not good for Adam to be alone. And so what does he do? He builds him. He creates for him. Puts him to sleep. He says, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Isn't that interesting? 
the very order of creation was the intent in the mind of God that the man would have leadership and rule, and when he was incomplete and it was not good for him to be alone, God made a helper to come alongside to finish him out, to, to fulfill the un- incompleted qualities inside of him. And I don't think I have to stress with this audience how wonderful a thing it is, how God made a man and a woman to fit together in all kinds of ways. The order of creation, it doesn't stop there though. He goes on and he gives another reason for it. And Adam was not the one deceived, verse 14. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now what's he talking about? His first argument was he says, I'm teaching you I'm telling you, this is how we do it. That's apostolic mandate. The second thing he teaches as to why this role difference in the church is the order of creation. Adam was created first. Eve was created to be the helper. And that's the way God designed it. Okay? Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. That's God's design in creation. That's a good thing. The third thing is the fall. Lessons from the fall. Number three, look what he says. The woman was deceived. Then Adam was not the one deceived. Verse 14, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What an interesting verse, isn't it? What are we talking about here? Now, I want to make clear something here right from the beginning. Theologically, clearly, doctrinally, Paul taught in Romans and and other places, and the Bible is clear that the human race fell because of Adam's sin, not Eve's sin. That Adam is the one who, because of his sin, all people everywhere are sinners, and the new Adam is Jesus Christ who comes to, to take care of the curse of sin that was brought on by the first Adam. So the second Adam is Christ, the first Adam is Adam in the garden. He was held completely responsible by God for sinning in the garden. So there we are in the garden. You got the tree, the fruit of good and evil. Eve is standing there, and all Paul is saying, listen... Here's what happens when the wife isn't careful to come in underneath her man and let him lead. She's there. She starts in, or the serpent approaches her in her evident naivety, begins to talk to her and say, don't you want to eat this fruit? And it says right here in 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, she's the one who was deceived. The serpent deceived her. In Eve's mind, this became a good thing. It was disobedient to God. It was off limits. It was an unlawful decision. It had horrendous consequence. But she thought, you know what? I just thought it was a good idea. You know, and and, and when I put it in R and put my foot on the gas, I thought it was going to go forward. It was okay. I didn't know. That was kind of a condescending remark, wasn't it? And (laughs) And so she takes the fruit. She's deceived. She eats it, and then what does she do? She goes to her husband, who perhaps was right there, says, Adam, baby, it's really good. What's a man going to do? Honey, you messed up. No, she comes and she influences Adam. What is Paul talking about here? Not all Bible students agree with this, but it seems to me what he's talking about by using lessons from the fall as an argument for the order in the church being male-directed and male-led, the women coming in under that, 
is that when you turn around, when you reverse the order of command, when you let the woman take the lead, and the man is passive, and the man yields over the right of leadership to the woman, then God doesn't bless it. Things happen that weren't supposed to happen. And I think that's what Paul is referencing here. Look what happens when Eve isn't careful to let her husband lead, to fall in under the... She was deceived. Now, I'm not going to build a doctrine on that, that women are characteristically uh, easier to deceive than men. I will say that ever since, that plastic snakes have made more women scream than men. (laughs) But I'm sure there's lots of levels of deception, and some women are so prudent and discerning, and a lot of men are the ones who go, yeah, we'll buy that, we'll do that, yeah, yeah. And his wife's saying, no, he's lying to you. So there's discernment, there's help on both sides. But what I get out of that line, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, that the idea there was that when she wasn't careful, otherwise, what is Paul thinking? Because he's using that as an argument for the women to be quiet and let the men lead in the church. If, if Eve would have been quiet and let her husband take over the conversation, it might not have turned out the same way. That's Paul's point. Well, there we go. We've got three questions that we've asked. What's the historical position? The church has always understood this at large to mean the, male are to lead, the men are to lead and to teach. The second question is... What were the probable conditions there? What made Paul address this issue? And it was evidently the women were usurping authority and taking over under the leadership and under the allowance of the false teachers of chapter 1. And then what's the biblical instruction? What does the passage say? We've made it through all but one verse. And we're going to just stop right here now and we'll pick it up in two weeks. Verse 15 is a very difficult verse to interpret. And in fact... Probably it's safe to say, in case you want to do some reading on it, that we can't just say unequivocally, this is exactly what he means. We don't know exactly what Paul meant in verse 15, but I think we can give you a good idea. And it's helpful. And it does tie in with verses 11 through 14. So what are a few thoughts that we would wrap up today on this amazing, interesting passage of Scripture that is very countercultural? One thing that I get out of it is this. I think that it is a challenge in the church for men to step up to their God-given position of leading in the home and leading in the church. You see, that's another reason for the apostolic mandate here. God didn't put the man in charge at home and then send him to church to not be in charge. Foundational to all relationships is the family relationship And then God is at work through his church. He's not going to establish the male leadership in the home and then go to church and turn it around. God doesn't do things like that. I think there's a lot of women that would be a lot more content to have their man lead if he would lead. That's hard. I'm not trying to beat guys up. Sometimes our wives are smarter than we are. They know more about the Bible than we know. They're more sensitive to spiritual things. They they just have intuitively... a They know how things ought to be and we don't know. Well, let her help you. Pray with her. Oversee your home. Get sin out of your home. Become the spiritual leader that is respectworthy so that your wife, it will be the joy and delight of her life 
to have a godly leading man that she can come alongside, that she can be the assistant to. So clearly in this passage, it is directed to women, but it's a challenge to men to step up into leadership. I think that it is important also for all of us on this to recognize that God doesn't give us instruction that go against the way we're hardwired. I really don't think that this instruction is counterintuitive. I really don't think that this instruction goes against the way God hardwired us. Our culture is trying to squeeze things into us that are outside of the will and plan of God. We do things God's way. It works in the home and in the church. And God knows it. And Paul wasn't afraid to write it down and tell Timothy to teach it. Let's bow in prayer. So, Father, as we prepare to leave and head out for another week, we just quiet ourselves for a minute and thank you for this instruction. It's, it's challenging, it's stretching, it raises a lot of questions, but that's good for us. Father, would you show us that it is real that the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing And that includes a lot of teaching that goes along with the gospel. Father, for the men in the audience and the boys that are growing up, would you show us, Lord, how to be better spiritual leaders to our wives, to our families, in the church? Father, that we would be growing, that we would be sensitive to your leading in our lives, that we would surrender and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that we would desire to know and obey your word, and that our wives... And the women of the church would look around and they would say, look at the great group of godly men. What a joy. What strength there would be. Father, for those that might be struggling with cultural influence, and Father, would you help us realize that you aren't about putting women down. You're about helping them maximize their potential. You're about helping them fit in doing what they do best. And so would you help us to love our wives as you love the church? Would you help our wives to understand what this role means? And would you help us to just grow in our affirmation that you never give us instruction that doesn't work? May we be committed to it. Father, may we just surrender ourselves to you and to your word and let you teach us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.